I'm Peg Kiner, and this is Thriving on the Possibility. In this season, we'll explore episodes of female explorers explaining the stories of resilience. Shame researcher Brene Brown says that there are few words that people tell themselves to overcome obstacles. That they say, this is the story I'm telling myself, and that through that narrative, they can overcome struggles and achieve greatness. I'm on the hunt for that story. So here at National Geographic, I found female explorers to come tell me their stories of resilience, of how they've navigated obstacles, overcome struggles, and all those small steps that they take each day to keep going. This is Thriving on the Possibility, and I'm your host, Peg Kiner. Today we have Justine Amendalia with us today. Justine, where are you recording from? Hi, Peg. Um, so I'm based right now in Toronto, Canada, which is currently under lockdown, so you wouldn't recognize too much of the city, but still here. <laughs> and I'm live from Chicago. We're so glad to have you with us today and digging a little deeper into this topic that we all know and love, resilience. First things first, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. Um, so I consider myself a marine biologist, plastic pollution researcher, and a science communicator. And basically what my whole kind of theme aligns with is being able to go out into the fields and into the lab, do my science experiments, and not only kind of take it to scientific audiences, but share it with much broader audiences, uh, ranging from students all the way up to educators and the general public. Now, how did you find yourself in marine biology? That's that's actually a bit of a loaded question there. Um, if and if any of you know where Toronto is, it's a fairly landlocked city next to um, one of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario. And although we have a water body, uh, growing up in the city, you know it was really difficult to kind of have that connection to the water because, you know, you're not directly located there and you kind of seem a bit distant from this beautiful part of nature. And really what kind of enthralled me with water was when my family would drag us down to Florida for vacations. And it was really making that first contact with the ocean (laughs) that I remember as a five-year-old child really like saying hi to the ocean and saying goodbye on vacations and kind of having this more personal connection there and, you know, just having the opportunity to kind of be a child and really explore an environment and ask questions without fear of failure and, you know, being kind of schooled on things, um, seeing the fish and the different animals that lived in the ocean really kind of brought me into this whole crazy world of marine biology. That's so sweet. I love the the vision of this personal connection with the ocean. I can absolutely see my students saying hello and goodbye to the lake here in Lake Michigan. Like that's such a sweet image. And I could see how you would hold that with you, you know, when you're small and you create that personal relationship with nature and how that would carry with you through right now. And I now the work that I know you best as is doing plastic pollution research. Now, tell me about the jump from marine biology, this relationship with water, and then finding yourself following, you know, plastic pollution throughout the world. For sure. Um, So really kind of diving into this whole world of marine biology, some of the projects that I've worked on before have more or less focused on like animal behavior, for example. And, you know, picture yourself, you're locked in a lab, you're running experiments on animals, and you're kind of stressing them out in a way where you put them under conditions to see how they respond to different stress and and really get an idea about how they would behave. And for me, you know, the lab 
kind of atmosphere never really fit me perfectly. <laughs> I have to say that I always pictured uh, myself as a marine biologist being out in the fields and doing these amazing experiments and kind of understanding and solving problems on how we can improve the environment for these different animals. So that's what really drew me into this whole world of plastic pollution. And I can say that my first experience that really triggered, I guess, my interest in plastic pollution was seeing, being able to go up to the Arctic um, very early in my career up to eastern Greenland and seeing how humans impacted the environment through plastics. And it gave a very visual and tangible um, experience where, you know, you directly saw the harm that um, humans were imposing on this beautiful ecosystem and environment. So, yeah, even though this... Um, experience was kind of meant to study animal behavior, um, looking at these seabirds and how they interacted, because that's what I was studying at the time. It really gave me an opportunity to observe firsthand, you know, how humans were impacting this environment. I can hear how passionate you are. And it really is in these stories of you in the field of what's happening to you in each of these locations. Do you have any stories that you could share with us about your experience in the field and how you've overcome obstacles? For sure. And in terms of resilience, I mean, I feel that's part of our toolkit as scientists, that although most of us are trained in problem solving and overcoming these massive obstacles, it's not something a lot of us really um, it doesn't come to mind for a lot of us right away. And I would say that, you know, um, it's, it's really tricky when you're in the moment. So having the opportunity to kind of use your creative part of your brain um, and put away maybe your rationale or scientific bit and really pull together these problems and found, find ways out are, are really important. So one, one example that really stuck with me was when I was up in Eastern Greenland, um, again, very early in my career, this was a time when, you know, I was fresh out of college, National Geographic decided to sponsor me on my expedition up there, and I was off to study seabird behavior. And for me, I was using these little trackers or backpacks, uh, GPS trackers to be exact. And the whole goal was to stick them on the backs of birds to see where they were flying off in the ocean to get food. Now, everything with this project was going great uh, because I had a dozen or so trackers that were on the birds. They were flying off in the ocean. They were tracking where the birds were getting food. Um, and I was waiting for the birds to come back to get the trackers off. Everything was going great up until the point it was three and a half days straight of watching out for these birds uh, because I was with this small team that we would take shifts and, and watch out for them to come back. And unfortunately, one by one, the birds came back without the backpacks. And for me, this was absolutely disheartening because I remember, you know, being in eastern Greenland, not being able to communicate with anyone um, outside of our camp, including my advisor at the time. Uh, who felt like a world's away and just absolutely panicking because I, I didn't really have too much support from the crew I was working with at the time. And it just came to the point where, you know, after three and a half days, you barely have any sleep, you're completely worried. Um, you know, I was sitting on a rock by myself in the colony and I just remember breaking down. And it was a moment of complete vulnerability where, you know, I was never really trained for that. And in science, I was always taught that, you know, you were successful on your first try. If not, you kind of sucked it up and uh, got your experiments done um, without really having that backstory. So I remember just breaking down, allowing myself to be, feel vulnerable. Um, and just to paint a quick picture for you, you know, this colony we were at in eastern Greenland was didn't have connections to any other towns or villages. So when you were alone in the colony, you were completely by yourself. And by that point, all my uh, teammates had gone down to the cabin, uh, leaving me alone. And, you know, I was at the point where in the middle of my complete 
moment of breakdown, I heard this scream from behind me and it completely caught me off guard. And I freaked because, you know, there were polar bears actually near our field site. Um, we were, we were trained to have our guns up with us at all time. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's a polar bear behind me. So I quickly turned around and I saw near my backpack where I placed it with my, my rifle, a tiny little Arctic fox that had its leg raised halfway into the air and he was about to pee all over my backpack. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I'm by myself on a cliff co- covered in tears and just despair. And then there's this little fox about to pee all over my stuff. And I realized that if he did pee, I would smell like fox urine for six weeks in the fields. So I, without even thinking, I was so angry. I just yelled at this fox and I asked him to stop what he was doing. And surprisingly, he ended up looking at me and we, we had this really weird moment of connection. And, you know, it, this fox, I have to say, pulled me out of the spunk I was in and kind of brought me back to reality that, yes, there was comedy in the world. <laughs> and you, there were ways to feel better about yourself. But also, you know, it just kind of brought me back into where I was, uh, making myself more present in this beautiful environment. You know, not too many folks in the world can say they've been in a place where they've been outnumbered by animals um, in, in a way where you're surrounded by millions of birds and all these crazy Arctic foxes. So this fox and I both shared him and he spared me the misery of uh, peeing all over my backpack. So that was good. Um, and yeah, from there, you know, I had the opportunity to really kind of bring in my project and think of a new way to save it. So that really emphasized the re- resilience behind the whole piece. That sounds like such a grounding moment to be kind of consumed in your own project and, and alone and then being reminded by nature very forcefully, I might add, <laughs> that there is more to the world than kind of what our brains are thinking about, that the world continues on. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, you know, what I'm so interested in finding out is when we do have those moments, when we're reflecting on what went wrong or the obstacles ahead, what do you tell yourself? You know, you had this grounding Fox experience that pulled you out of your funk, but how do you mm. get over that next step? Like, what do you, what's the story you tell yourself to get to the next level? For sure. Um Really, I think, you know, the fox kind of pulled me out of the water so that my head was above. And then I was just kind of gasping for air at that point. And really the reminder was, I think, that I was so privileged as is to be, you know, in Eastern Greenland doing this amazing project that I dreamed about for a full year before going off to. So, you know, reflecting on the privilege, reflecting on, you know, this isn't the end of the world, (laughs) the world's still moving, as you said, um, really kind of gave that next wave of energy where it really, you know, I had my moment of feeling down and feeling hurt. And I kind of took to my notebook and scribbled out a plan of attack uh, for the next couple of weeks to try to try my best to save the project. Because at that point, I knew that, you know, if I was going to go down, I wanted to go down with the fight. And I didn't want to be that person uh, who came back from the field and said it went wrong. There wasn't anything I could do. So looking for an escape plan really kind of fueled this obsession. And I have to say, um, you know, if anyone who's been to the field is listening, they know that you, you get into work mode and there's really no escaping it because once you're, you know, out studying animals, you're on a mission to get your project done 
So, you know, this really became my life for the following weeks afterwards. And it really, um, having those goals and that motivation there really kind of stuck, stuck my nose to the ground to get the project done. Your experience in nature kickstarted you to kind of do a full reset on your whole project and force you to think differently about a next path. And, and I love how the goal, your next goal really sets your brain in order to complete the, the second half of this. So having those moments where we kind of take ourselves out of our heads and allow to see the full picture of what's in front of us to be creative and to find that next path. I think that's super empowering and and, some, and like a strategy a lot of people could use, you know, as finding a grounding moment to look at the larger scope of what's happening to then direct your next question to follow that. For sure. No. And I mean, one, one part, I think, uh, what kind of kept, kept me going in that moment was even articulating my thoughts in a journal. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, taking these small moments and just broadening the scope and, you know, seeing where your creativity could kind of roll with that. So yeah, just taking a moment for yourself and to have those thoughts kind of evolve and and grow with you. And what did that look like when you went back to your team? I'm just imagining you coming down from the cliff, like simultaneously angered and excited and greeting this team. You know, you talked a little bit about the mm. feeling of the team. What did that look like when you came back? Um, I think they thought I lost my mind at that point. <laughs> I have to say, I, yeah, um, the team I was working with, um, were, they were quite great. I mean, in the way that, you know, you're stuck with, with three people for six weeks. So, I mean, it, picture yourself in that situation. It, it can get, um, quite tense at times just because of the insane pressure that comes along with, you know, operating a, uh, almost a hundred thousand dollar trip. I mean, by the time you put the helicopters in there and all your, all your tracking devices. So there, there are definitely tensions that exist, but, uh, I think they thought I was crazy really because, you know, I came up with a project where, you know, on average, you would have to prepare uh, much ahead of time to get anything done. And, you know, having kind of these scrappy ideas on, you know, instead of tracking animals, I wanted to collect poop and, and how was I going to do that? Um, so that really kind of um, framed it nicely. But they, they were very supportive towards the end with, um, you know, facilitating time where I could literally uh, go up to the mountain uh, by myself and, you know, hold birds until they gave me samples. So, yeah, that worked out quite nicely, I have to say. <laughs> Justine, you gloss over the details of this project. I know because you lived it. But just for everyone listening, yes, Justine said that she told her team that she was pivoting the project to collect poop. I'm just, I'm just imagining their faces. You come in, like, so here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna do now. I'm gonna hold birds until they poop. Is that really, is that really how it went? It, it was. It was. I. I briefly thought about it earlier when I went up there and I was looking at patterns of, okay, how, how do animals poop? I mean, and especially birds. I mean, they're so, it's such an art to pooping. Um, you know, they usually, they have a strategy, believe it or not. Um, it's kind of like humans. I mean, think about it. We all have our patterns, but with these guys in particular, these birds that are the size of a can of Coke, they're super tiny and they're little powerhouses. They spend most of their summer flying miles and miles and miles away from the colony to go get food to feed their chicks. So think about it. If you're a bird that's really tiny, you want to be as light as possible so that you could maximize the amount of food you're getting. So, you know, getting your poop out at the right time is a great strategy to really increase your efficiency. <laughs> so yeah, trying to kind of watch patterns of that really stuck out with me for that summer. And one thing that I noticed especially was is like, 
picture a mom or dad bird, you know, they're in the they're in their little burrows with their chicks and they'll they'll kind of pop out and then they'll fly off into the ocean. Within that one to two minute interval, right when they leave their little nest, that's the perfect time to poop and get rid of all that extra weight. So that was where I kind of inserted myself into the ecosystem <laughs> that I was in. And I was that kind of stalker in a way, waiting for the birds to get to a perfect spot where I could kind of snag them with a scientific design, uh, device. It was basically uh, a string and a piece of wood um, where you created like a little booby trap or like noose that they would kind of get their feet in and yank the birds up to me without making, making sure that they were completely in the air at that point so they wouldn't get hurt or hit. And yeah, just basically waiting until they gave me the samples that they were going to drop anyways. <laughs> you have to be one of the most persistent people I know to be tracking the pooping patterns of birds. And this is your like brilliant plan. Uh, you, you are absolutely the most persistent person I know. Uh, based on all this, what does resilience mean to you? You know, you have really pivoted so much in the field and had to make choices, creative choices on the spot. What does resilience mean to you? resilience i think it, it's so person specific um i it would be really hard to define it on a spectrum so i think it relates to your own personal experience and you know whatever problems you encounter within your experience um especially with what means most to you for for me Persistence is really getting through any problems and not taking no for an answer. Um, <laughs> you kind of touched on my uh, character like really well, where it's, you know, if one door shuts, another one opens somewhere or you knock out another one and it eventually opens. So really making sure that you kind of achieve your goals, as cliche as that sounds, without, you know, going down easy. <laughs> Can I ask a little bit going back in time for you? Sure. Now, as a child, were you just always this persistent? Where did this come from? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, in my past life, uh, like we're going probably like 11 years old. I think I had more of an entrepreneurial spirit, I think, going in. Um, I can distinctly remember um, being the one in the schoolyard selling candy to other kids. <laughs> I know up, that kids. Sending up my own business. Um, yeah, if you ever watched cartoons growing up, I, I think Recess totally like covered it really well, where there was always one kid who was the hustler. Um, and yeah, I kind of tried to like tap into different avenues where it's like you could take a project, see it from start to finish, and really track its, its motivation and uh, end goals. And for me, kind of diving into the area of biology, I think predecessed um, before with more of a business kind of lens. So, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. I just could hear it in your voice. I'm like, oh, this is not a new thing for you. You are clearly <laughs> sourcing this persistent, I don't take no as an answer energy from somewhere else in your life. Mm. So, and that's, that is a pattern I have seen amongst other, uh, other explorers yeah. that there's some moment that mm. they've had where they learn to keep asking questions and that there is reward in the consistent persistence of curiosity. Well, and, and one thing, one other experience I think that might stand out a bit more was uh, growing up, my mom was uh, emigrated from Guatemala to Canada in the eighties. So, you know, having that Canadian identity mixed in with having an immigrant parent really kind of brought in a whole other set of values where, you know, the struggle of making it within her, her own country and, you know, make, being able to persist through careers during like a very unstable time in history, kind of, I, I feel like she taught a lot of lessons growing up. Um, and one thing specifically was, you know, to, don't take no for an answer because there's always a way out of things. And for me, 
I, there was another experience where I ended up having a speech competition, I think when I was about 12 years old. And it was, the topic was why I was proud to be Canadian. And I know it was also a 12 year old kid, you know, getting up in front of an auditorium full of um, teachers and students. It was a really terrifying experience. And I remember not being acknowledged um, for, for that piece. I, I didn't end up placing. It was kind of devastating for me because I worked on worked so hard towards it. And my mom's attitude, instead of, you know, just kind of leaving it and letting that experience die, um, she made me write out the speech personally and address it to the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> it was one thing where I remember getting a letter signed uh, by Prime Minister Paul Martin saying how proud he was that, you know, I, I gave the speech in front of my school. So that's another experience that really kind of drove in this whole determination and, you know, not to ask for a participation trophy, but more or less to get, you know, when, when you feel like you have a cause worth fighting for, you make sure you see it through because somewhere down the line, someone will see your passion and really vouch for it in a different way. That's so validating. And to mm-hmm. have a parent kind of direct your energy in that way mm-hmm. and that you know, what you've created is worth value and it's worth sharing to more people. Do you have other people in your life who've supported you in that way where maybe when you felt like you were defeated, they encourage you to drive your energy in a different outlet? Oh, for sure. I mean, I would say my my mom is really one of the biggest supporters I've had. You know, she's kind of seen my vision from the start with pursuing this whole really out there career as a marine biologist, because again, in Toronto, it's not something that you really come across and even um, environmental streams, it's it's not really a, a well-sought-after career, for example, in, in most Hispanic families. Um, so having that support there was detrimental. But also um, having a mentor, an undergraduate, and you know a colleague now, um, Dr. Shoshana Jacobs, who actually mentored me through the whole Greenland process. Um, this professor, I have to say, really invested a lot of faith and trust um, into me as an under, undergraduate and really having that kind of mentor and friend that's evolved now for, I think we've known each other for about six, seven years so far. It's been extremely helpful, you know, having, um, when I, when I've had problems, I've approached them on advice on how I could, you know, solve them if not get through it. And yeah, having that mentorship there from someone who's very high up there in their career has definitely helped a lot. And I know that's something that you are very invested in as well, is kind of paying it forward and investing in other young scientists and explorers and helping them with their career. And I can see why that means so much to you now. Mm, For sure. And like, that's been a lesson um, that I've really kind of taken throughout my career. It's if you get a couple steps forward, always make sure you turn back and extend an arm to someone else to help them forward as well. Um, We really can't run sustainably in science or have a progressive field fighting for the right social causes unless we recruit more more individuals that are you know really keen um, to join I guess scientific discoveries and, and movements but also you want to make sure you're encouraging those individuals who maybe come from different social standings and different areas of privilege um, you know I unfortunately there's with diversity there's not a whole lot of diversity in science we're getting a bit better in ecology um, but we still have a lot a long way to go so making sure I guess there, there's more representation along the line is, is really important. I love that. And it sounds like one way that we can all continue to do that is to encourage more people, you know, to really extend our hand to someone else. And it sounds like in your career, this individual and personal relationship you've had with people Mm. has really launched you forward, either whether it's a sounding board or Mm. 
as a mentor, but I can hear how important that is and to continuing to encourage you to problem solve. Of course. No, and that's, <laughs> thank you for describing it so well, Peg. Um, another, I guess, aspect I would like to touch on too is, you know, having the right platforms to get messages out and also elevate your career. And for me, one thing that we, we both know each other through the, like the National Geographic Society, and that's one, organize, one organization I can't think enough because, you know, as a young scientist, here you are without a platform, but having the opportunity to reach, you know, all these broad audiences. Um, students, for me, has been one of the biggest privileges to uh, reach as well as educators, um, just really because, you know, the way science operates is there's an ivory tower complex, you're kind of stuck in a university but being able to share your knowledge and really mobilize it and get people excited, um, it's such a privilege to be able to be a part of. So having good, good and meaningful collaborations with like the National Geographic Society and different educators is, has been really life-changing in that regard. I totally agree. It's, you know, on the other side of this, the partnership with explorers and, mm. you know, I say this to a lot of explorers, but, you know, these kids really want to be you. So for me to have a platform like this where we can share those stories of what you did when things got hard, I think that's really important, too. As much as we share our science yeah. and all the exciting discoveries we've made, I think what people almost need a little bit more is to hear how you got that far of all the, the things it took for you to get to this place. So thank you so much for sharing these personal stories today, um, because that is not what we always see out there you know we don't hear of how what you said to yourself to get through the hard times and that's yeah. something that we can all use right now thank you so much for having me peg and it was a complete privilege to be with you so thank you so much all music was created using apple loops and garage band the logo was created by jen lever using the plant photo was taken by jonas kaiser and